In my former home, with no grass and little in the way of a yard, I had no interest in power tools for the garden. In fact, a power lawnmower seemed more like an annoyance than anything else in my neighborhood, where everyone had a small yard. Seriously, my yard was 16 feet wide, that's one six, and 100 feet long, and that included the house and a parking space at the back. All the yards were around that size or even smaller. I'm Shauna Doby, editor of Canada's local gardener magazine, and this is Flora and Fauna. Since we moved in the fall, we have a nice-sized yard, and I've been looking at lawnmowers with a more critical interest. This week, I spoke with Chris Kaiser at the Outdoor Power Equipment Institute in the U.S. He told me all about some machines you can use in your yard and about the safety of using them. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm Chris Kaiser. I'm president of the Outdoor Power Equipment Institute, our education arm, the Turf Mutt Foundation. And we own one of the largest trade shows in the United States called Equip Exposition. It's an annual show every year in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. It looks, how's the weather doing there? It looks like it's, spring is just starting. Oh, it's delightful. Oh, we're in full bloom, but that means the pollen has started. The allergies have started, but my grass has been mowed, I think three or four times already. Wow. It's all good. Here in Winnipeg, the snow has just (laughs) melted, most of it. And I've got a lot of snow mold on my lawn, which I've never seen before. I've just moved here myself. so That's tough. Well, here, because we have the Kentucky Derby in a few weeks, that's when people open their pools. So the the pool will be opened in about two, three weeks. We've been in the 80s all week. Oh, that's really nice. Tell me about Turf Mutt. Is it separate from the OPEI? It's the education arm. So it's a different organization. It's a foundation. So it's a different legal structure. But it is a, it is an entity of both the show and the association. It's the education arm for the trade group. We've been in about a dozen years old now. We've reached 70 million students, teachers, and families, teaching kids about the outdoors, becoming stewards of the outdoors, and helping nature win everywhere possible. We understand in talking to children, now we don't create the curriculum or the programming. It's done by folks at Scholastic or Discovery or Weekly Reader or the Science Teachers Group. They put it into schools. We're in the United States Green Building Council, Global Learning Lab. So it's a global effort. But we want to empower kids to take a more active role. It's called backpack programming. If you talk to kids, much like recycling, they'll take it home to their parents and hopefully wear it roots. Now, OPI, we do have a Canadian affiliate, OPI Canada. Um, so we are incorporated in Canada, but and we work with some folks there. And Turf Mutt's actually active in Canada. We do um, right now. He the program is talking about recycling in British Columbia, where our equipment is recycled. I moved here from Toronto, where I lived downtown, quite an urban area, and I have to confess, we didn't have a lawn. When we did, we had a push mower, and I was always a little bit shocked by people who use leaf blowers and that kind of thing because of the noise. Is that something that's still going on or is that more sure. of a city thing? It's a challenge, right? And so the, one of the reasons leaf blowers are ubiquitous is because they work, right? They can move a lot of product in a short amount of time. They're also used for a wide range of purposes. So as opposed to, we see leaf blowers just uh, replacing potable water. So in the old days in a small town, the shopkeepers would take hoses and clean the sidewalks in front of their stores and Walmart and Home Depot. They will use water to clean. Typically in the States, that's potable water. 
And what a leaf blower allows them to do is clean those spaces like a stadium after a concert or after a ball game in a very efficient and timely way. It helps folks obviously with leaves, leaf matter in the fall. But yes, so they do make noise like most power equipment. It does, some folks find it problematic. We do work with landscape contractors on behavior. Don't run them first thing in the morning. Don't run them late at night. Don't run them in groups of four and five. There are ways to address the issue, but oftentimes it's behavior how they're used, when they're used, where they're used. Don't use them near open doors and windows. Try and be mindful of others around you. Seasonality, be mindful of when you're using them, but they do serve a lot of purposes. And so they're a valuable product in the marketplace. I will confess that since I've moved here and I have a a much bigger yard, though it's not huge by any standards, it has occurred to me that they would be a very useful thing to have in the fall because it was quite exhausting raking up those leaves. And I never did a really great job of it. They're, they're wonderful. I've had pretty good sized yards here for a while now, and they're remarkably effective and they're just helpful. And like my 85 year old mother who has a lot of trees around her property uses, she has a little small handheld battery unit and she does her deck and patio where she can sit because you'll get leaf matter or pollen or you name it that'll come down. And a leaf blower is very quick and easy for someone like her just to clean the deck. So there's a product, doesn't matter your age, sex, height, weight, there's a product and a price point for you. That's the nice thing about power equipment. Now you mentioned not using potable water for cleaning. What about power washers? That's something you cover as well, isn't it? It is. So what is your question relative to using them to clean? They do. Typically they're attached to a hose or any water source through a hose. So mm-hmm. if you're at a home, yeah, that might be potable water, but you're doing a particular service there. And it's typically a homeowner or a specific purpose. I don't know. I've not seen parking lots power washed, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, but absolutely. Yeah. It'll be an issue. Okay. When we were selling our house in Toronto, we had such a small yard and a problem between our let's call them patio stones. There was, we just left it with mud and because we walked over it all the time, nothing grew there. And a lot of that mud would come out and end up all over the patio. And so I thought I've got to power wash it. And we borrowed a power washer from a guy a couple of doors down. And I got to tell you, I made such a mess of it. I think (laughs) I just didn't have a big enough yard or something because I would, first of all, I'd aim it at this mud And it would just come right back up at me. And I was drenched and covered in mud by the time I was done. Was I using it completely incorrectly? So again, it's it's obviously a high pressure jet of water. It's designed to clean material off a hard surface. So if you're spraying it onto ground or or dirt, I don't think it's what the machine is intended to do. And so if you're going to clean between bricks or hardscape, it ought to be mortared. So oftentimes people will clean the mortar and mold off of that kind of stuff. In Florida, my family's in Florida, you'll get mold over a period of time. And so the power washer is really good at cleaning the mold off of a deck. I see. And what about getting, okay, here I have bricks, they're much closer together. And a little couple of weeds will grow up between them. Will the power washer get rid of that? It's probably not the best use for a power washer. You got to pull the weed, the best way to get rid of a weed. You're going to use a lot of, it's a sledgehammer on a nail. It's a lot Mm -hmm. of, it's a lot of power uh, and water to get out of weed. It's not typically a use for a power washer. Darn it. So I can't get a power washer where I am. I just don't have a use for it, eh? 
you're just going to create a groove. And so if you've got weeds between stones, you're simply going to clear dirt material or uh, out from between them. So if, and if you don't have those bricks mortared together, if they're just set in dirt or a sand bath, you'll blow that out and mm-hmm. the bricks will move around. And so I don't know how you're, the, whoever put them in, the hardscape or whoever they set the bricks, but you have to be careful with that. If they're not, if they're simply set in dirt or sand or material that can be moved, a power washer will move that material. And then you'll lose the settings of your stones or your bricks. So be mindful of that. Okay. I won't get a power washer. Why isn't there cement or something between the pavers in my yard? I never see it in anyone's yard between pavers, which are pretty closely spaced, or between flagstones that are further apart. Turns out landscapers don't put cement or grout or anything in these spaces because it will inevitably crack with the freeze-thaw cycle. The article I read suggested that it's not a good idea to use sand either because it'll be displaced by ants. This is something I'm noticing on my patio right now. There are two spots where little piles of sand are growing around the space between two pavers. The article said to use small gravel when laying flagstones, and that makes sense, but it doesn't really help for my pavers, which are very tightly put together. So I looked further. Lots of pest control companies have their suggestions of poisons and borax, but finally I came upon an article from the National Post from 2016 in which the writer tried to overcome the ants making hills between her pavers humanely. She did not succeed and eventually tried to poison them when they came out above ground to mate. Turns out what this does is called budding. When you disturb the colony by killing a bunch of ants, they respond by splitting up the colony in two more colonies. Now with lawnmowers, this is the first time I've ever truly needed one. And my husband and I have been arguing between gas and electric. I said we needed gas, but I'm starting to think maybe we only need an electric one and a battery powered one at that. Can you tell me anything about the difference? Sure. Now, one of the things again, we like to say we represent all those manufacturers, whether it's electric, corded, battery, gasoline, is there's a product that meets your needs. And one of the unique things is then you can choose the power source or power supply that best fits you and what your needs are. If you're a landscape contractor and you're running a unit eight hours a day, seven days a week, five days a week, a gasoline engine may be what you need. So it's a personal preference. And the nice thing about power equipment, there's a price point in the unit out there for you. Are you, and one of the things to be mindful of, batteries are affected by external environments. Is it cold? It'll ha- it'll draw more power. Are you in tall grass, wet grass, uh, heavy slopes? Those will draw. And so your run times may vary. Gasoline doesn't have those issues. It doesn't have a charge time per se. You just fill the tank. But it's a personal preference. What your needs are, the size of your yard too. If you've got an acre, it might not be, it might be too big for your battery. Again, it depends on the unit, depends on the price the size and the charge time. But there's a unit for both. We represent both manufacturers. They each have their pros and cons. The key is to find what works best for you. I was told that I wouldn't be able to start a gas mower because you have to pull the... Oh, goodness. That's a long time ago. Okay. Um, Oh, gosh. They've come a long way. Now, it's a short... It's a half pull. Very quick, easy start nowadays with a gasoline engine. Or you can get them with a electric start where it's just a push button or a key typically now push button. So just like a snow thrower, you can get that on a mower. And so if you have a walk behind mower, you have a small yard, you can get one with front drive, rear drive, all wheel drive. 
Depends on, do you have slopes? Do you have hills? What's the nature of your grass? So all different kinds of mowers with different capabilities, different price points. But again, work with a dealer or down at the their big box retailer. They can guide you through it. You can also go to the manufacturer's website. So what works best on what kind of lawn in what environment? Lots and lots of different products. What about the robot guys? That's another one. So robots are big now. They're coming in a meaningful way. Again, I think right now, size is a factor, the size of the yard, the configuration of the yard. And do you have a radio or GPS system? Do you have a radio wire system? There is a cost to the installation of that, a cost to the maintenance of that. But they're quiet. They work around the clock. They char- they'll drive themselves back to their charger. And they don't necessarily cut the grass. They shave the grass because they'll typically run every day. So they just take a little piece off. So your yard always looks the same. They're terrific units, widely available now. Lots and lots of manufacturers in that space. They're still at a significant price point. So depending on your needs, but they're certainly here. They're certainly a wave of the future. As well as interconnected product, remote controlled product, those technologies are now widely available. In a fit of passion for a house with a bigger yard, I promised my husband a year ago that I would mow the lawn. This is something I've never done before, and it'll be time to start soon. I'd love to get a robot mower. Who wouldn't? But I think I'd need a much bigger yard to justify that kind of expense. The cost will be about three times what I spend on a mower. I think I'll get a front-wheel drive mower because we have a flat lawn. It's Winnipeg. Everything is flat. Why would I want a push mower? I'm a middle-aged woman, front-wheel drive for me. I thought I'd need a gas mower because they would be more powerful, and I've always assumed that with a corded electric mower, I would eventually mow over the cord. But now they have battery-powered mowers that are pretty powerful, so I think I'll get one of those. Do you know anything about the battery recycling that you're doing in BC, or is that something I would have to ask the Canadian counterpart about? We're part of a program there that recovers and recycles unit itself, the electric unit. And the battery recycling is done by, again, a third-party contractor in a recycling system in BC. Those things are now starting to be created in the United States, battery recovery, battery recycling programs, as more and more of these units are sold. So the recovery and recycling of those is, I don't want to call it in its infancy, but it's essentially a new business model in the States. It's pretty well organized in British Columbia. But it's certainly going to expand as more and more battery products across the board become available. So that's just for BC. Here in Manitoba, I couldn't, I wouldn't give it to somebody who would take it to BC. I would just leave it in my garage until we have a battery recycling program. No, I imagine you've got a place that will accept the batteries. Oh, whether it's at, I don't know what Manitoba, I don't know what your system is there, but in all likelihood, you can take it back to retail or a dealer, there's likely an infrastructure in place where you could return a used battery. Most people have that. Same thing with old gasoline. She's mm-hmm. going to bark and bark until I, I don't know if you can see her. She's right here. I can see outside. her. She's a cutie. But that's the turf mud. That's mulligan. Let her in. <laughs> I'm glad we're not live or on television. That would be a pain. But turf, the, the turf mud foundation is told from a dog's point of view. And so the oh. lesson plans are from a dog's point of view. And so there's a dog spokesperson, Mutt Mulligan. It used to be Lucky the Turf Mutt. And so there's a live dog who's cartoonized into a superhero that helps young kids better understand the lesson plan. And she's the Turf Mutt. Chris rescued Mulligan and Lucky before her from the Humane Society. 
She makes a great mascot, and she seems to enjoy her position. It's a good step up from her beginnings, being abandoned as a little puppy along with all her siblings. On your website, you talk quite a bit about living landscapes for curb appeal. And that's something that we're concerned with as well as the living landscape as gardeners. Can you expound on that at all? One of the challenges, we came up with living landscapes in a program to save living landscapes during the course of a drought, particularly in California several years ago. Water's an issue, water availability, water quality. We recognize that. But one of the early responses to the California drought was, well, let's plants need water. And there's a lot of yards and homeowner space out there. Let's tear out the plants and then we'll save water. But then you get into a whole host of problems. You'll exacerbate the heat island effect. You exacerbate runoff. You exacerbate the ability to filter rainwater. Dust in particulate matter is aggravated. And we thought that was the wrong approach. The approach we want to do is if you put the right plants in the right place, know your climactic zone, you plant the right plants in the right place, when the drought comes, the plants won't need supplemental water. They'll do their part. They shut off and they'll spring right back when the rains come, as they inevitably do. And that's where we saw the living landscape is purposeful. We need a, we've got to have pollinator support. We need habitat. We've got to, because we live in man-made environments oftentimes, You've got to capture runoff, slow runoff, and filter it. So we thought the living landscape was the way to go. One of the proposals in California at the time was to replace your yard with plastic grass, right? Plastic turf, because it didn't need water. But it does need water because it turns into a Petri dish. You've got to clean it. And so that was one of our, that's one of our key messages is, and it's not necessarily curb appeal. Now, obviously, it's important. But what's also important is doing your part for nature. Nature starts at your back door and we can all play our part. And so whether it's pollinator support, I lived in the Atlantic Flyway for years, lots of migratory birds. And so I became very familiar with what they wanted. All they needed were certain kinds of plants and food and they'll stop, rest and recharge. And so you could, if people did that all along their route, you'd help them as they made, as they transited these man-made areas. The other thing you've got to bear in mind is Toronto, Baltimore, Houston, these are no longer native environments. These are man-made environments. And so we've exacerbated some problems, heat, runoff, hard surface area. And so plantings, canopy, shade, canopy is incredibly important. And opposed to putting up a hard fence, consider plants to give you privacy or screening because it's also habitat. We lose sight of, and I'll never forget a conversation in California about the, there was a desire to replace yards with astroturf, plastic grass. And I said, it doesn't breathe. And I, it's not important. I said, I heard you talking about climate change. The largest carbon sink in the United States of America are our lawns. So grass sequesters carbon, puts it in the ground, while at the same time producing oxygen. It's photosynthesis. And so these are the things that we wanted to remind people of, is put the right grass. You can still have a grass yard in some dry, arid climates, Use buffalo grass. It's tough as nails. It doesn't need supplemental water. But the key is know your zone, know your climactic zone, and put the right plant in the right place. This is so true. I hear people disparage turf lawns all the time, and I have to disagree with them. Grass is a plant. It doesn't offer nectar to bees, but neither does a field of wheat. Bees aren't the only thing in nature. There are also earthworms and beetles and birds like robins and sparrows, which all make 
great use of a turf grass yard. I'm not talking about a lawn that is amped up on synthetic fertilizers and watered beyond what any normal person can afford. You can add many plants to your turf, like clover, creeping thyme, and wild strawberries. Other plants will find a more natural lawn, like bird's foot trefoil and pineapple weed. Ontario Seed Company has a couple of lawn mixtures that contain these plants. One more thing. If you convince non-gardeners that they don't need a lawn, they will pave over their yards. That is such an easy thing to do. We don't want that. People want a soft green area they can walk, play, and laze around on. Well, that's enough of arguing. It's time for a break. Ian, what's up at head office? Canada's local gardener just got even better. Flora and Fauna, a new e-digest coming weekly. Go to localgardener.net to find out more information. That's localgardener.net. We're back. And I'm thinking about the question of replacing a lawn with native plants. I'm sure there are native ground covers in your area. If you want to plant something that acts the same as a lawn that you mow periodically so it stays low growing, I'm not sure about completely replacing turf grass with any native mixture. I love the look of a prairie with blazing star and white yarrow and fireweed, but they don't give your urban yard the same controlled look as a lawn. Searching the internet, I found a company called Wild About Flowers in Alberta that has a few mixes of native grass seeds. I think their City of Calgary restoration mix is meant for lawns. It's expensive, though. A two-pound bag, which will cover 500 square feet, is $90. They also offer an eco-mix lawn grass for $40 for two pounds, but it contains non-native fescue grasses. Let's go back to Chris and hear more about lawnmowers. A lot of folks mm-hmm. mowing, and in particular, women using machines. Today, the machines do the work, right? Mm-hmm. And so the key is know the machine. And in particular, I really want to say this, no kids around the machines, right? So oh. kids oftentimes are very interested in what their parents are doing. Children have no role and should not be around operating power equipment, whether it's a mower, a chainsaw, a snow thrower. No kids, no pets. They don't belong around an operating piece of equipment. The machines mm-hmm. are inherently safe. They're designed, but you need to be mindful of it. And so if you're a first-time mower owner or you've just got your first yard and you're going to mow, is know the machine. I know it sounds trite, but so whether it's the owner's manual, an awful lot of stuff's online now. You can uh, get videos, literally just Google what your machine is, show me a video how it works, and they'll walk you through the unit and safety features. Safety first. And one of the things you're going to do if you're going to mow is – Go look at the area where you're going to mow. Pick up, because that mower is going to find the garden hose and the tennis ball and the dog toy. And it's not good for the tennis ball and it's not good for the mower. So you want to pick that stuff up before you mow. Never disable a safety device on a mower. And the machine will do the work. Just let the machine do the work for you. How old can my daughter or son be before I send them out to mow the lawn? That's a tough one. I know... 18-year-olds, I'd give the car to in a heartbeat. I know 25-year-olds, I'd never want driving my car. Mm -hmm. Same thing with power equipment. I just think it depends on the maturity of the child. Rule of thumb at our trade show, we don't let children less than 12 even on the show floor where there's machines Mm -hmm. operating. And so to operate, we also have a demonstration area, 30 acres. You have to be 16 to operate a piece of equipment. Now, I grew up using them as a kid, right? So a lot of times it's your first job, mowing your neighbor, mowing yards. 
I think it very much depends on the capability of the child, the person. Again, the machine will do most of the work. You have to have some physical dexterity, but you have to be mature enough to operate it. Be very mindful. You have to know to put on shoes. You have to wear appropriate clothing. You got to protect your eyes and ears. All these things should go into your thinking when you're thinking about letting a young person operate machinery. According to the Nationwide Children's, a blog by pediatric experts, that's what they call themselves, in the United States, recommends that kids should be at least 12 before using a push mower and 16 before using a ride-on. It notes that almost 9,000 children under 18 are treated in emergency departments each year for mower-related injuries. One in four of those injuries is to a child under six, and about half of those is burns to the hands, which happens when a little one touches the hot motor. Most injuries are to teens, though, and they can have deep cuts, loss of fingers, hands, toes or feet, broken bones, eye injuries and soft tissue damage. They recommend that kids under six should be kept indoors when someone is mowing and that they should never be allowed to ride on a lawnmower with someone. The Canada Safety Council has the same recommendations, minimum 12 years old for walk-behind mowers and 16 for ride-on. I'm about to landscape my yard, put in some new gardens. What should I be thinking of before I do that in, with regard to lawn mowing? A mower should only be for your grass. You don't oh, want to no, mow of your course. Head. And how <laughs> wide should my how wide should my pathways be and that sort of thing? Can I do That's, a tight curve? Oh gosh, yeah. This is what if say a riding mower, even on a riding mower, certainly a handheld unit, you can turn them on a dime. But even big riding units, what's called a zero-turn mower, you can literally stop them and turn them on a dime. They're extremely agile machines. So I looked online for the answer to this question, and first I got the answer. A main walkway should be four feet wide. <laughs> Nobody on my street has a front walk that is four feet wide. Must be nice to be a landscaper and have so much room in your projects. A more realistic answer is 18 inches for a side pathway, but that isn't what I meant either. I think I didn't specify what I meant with Chris, though. I was thinking of a pathway made of grass, not a pathway through grass. This is something far, far more common in the British Isles. I've decided that the width of any grass pathways I should have is 22 inches, which is the typical maximum width of a power mower. One of the turf mutt things teaches us is tailor the space to your particular needs. We call it backyarding or backyarding types. So create that outdoor space that works for you. Do you want an office? Do you want a Zen area? Do you want to be a nature lover, a landscaper, an entertainer, a cook? You can create all kinds of outdoor spaces. And COVID really accelerated that. People mm -hmm. staying at home, creating their space. And we know being outdoors and particularly in a green environment really reduces stress and anxiety. It's a great place for exercise, getting your kids off their devices. So you can tailor it. You can have as big a pathway as you like. You might want to work with a professional to help you figure out what it is you want and the specific designs. But that's the nice thing about nature. Tailor it for your needs. But at the same time, remember, you can do your part in your plant selection. Get things that will flower throughout the year as opposed to just once one two-week period in the spring. Lots and lots of flower material throughout a season really helps pollinators. Think habitat, that kind of thing. And more importantly, know your hardiest, your plant hardiness zone, where you live, buy the plants that are appropriate for your region.
Yeah, it's hard not to. The nurseries won't often sell something. They will, but they'll warn you when they do, if it's out of your zone. And know when you're planting, are you still going to get a frost? Are you still going to get a freeze? It's very challenging. To hear. I mean, I'm in the Midwest now. We've had 80, 80 degree days, a lot of them. You still might get a freeze. And so if you put out new flowering plants, that'll take care of them. I've just got to interject with a bit of horticultural expertise here. You don't want to plant tomatoes and okra before the last frost, but there are many, many, many plants that will survive to a few degrees below zero Celsius through those last frosts. You can seed broccoli, cauliflower, and cabbage a month before last frost. Peas should go in as soon as the ground thaws. Asparagus crowns can be planted up to a month early. I've never gotten around to planting perennials, the plant, not the seed, before the last frost date, but I'm assured that they will survive too. With regard to mowing the lawn, does anybody actually not use the lawn clippings as mulch anymore? Well, they're usually, the machines do a pretty nice job, and most everything's sold now as a mulching mower. Sometimes you'll, I do it twice a year off the end because it picks up debris, leaves, sticks, just stuff in the yard. And in the spring, I'll oftentimes collect it and put it. We have a recycling system here where they pick it up and it goes, it's a plant matter, waste matter. It's recycled. I'll do it. But most of the time, unless you're letting your grass get really tall, then it becomes, you don't want clumps of grass laying on the yard. But the mowers do a pretty good job of recycling. It's a terrific natural fertilizer. Just shred Hmm. the grass, leave it on the ground. So how, can you refresh my memory, how long should the grass get and how long should I keep it? Three inches, rule of thumb. Again, Mm -hmm. part of it is where you live. Sometimes if it's going to be hot, dry and hot, a little taller grass, believe it or not, that they'll shade, the blade will shade the area. Rule of thumb is three inches. You don't want to, you don't want to take it too close to the ground. The plant's going to be healthier. It's going to want to work. You want the plant to develop a root system, right? So three inches is rule of thumb. Okay. And do you advocate for putting other things in your grass like clover? It's personal preference. Clover Mm -hmm. is a good nitrogen fixer. It's green. It flowers. If you do have clover in your yard, let it flower. But again, that's your height. So get your height, your blade height above some ground. If you have ground cover that flowers, I forget those little purple flowers or little yellow flowers or clover, let them flower so the bees can have at them. Pollinator support. That's a good idea. There are a few other power tools that you can use in the garden. Hedge trimmers, edge trimmers, and chainsaws, for instance. Chris and I had a heck of a time with technology when we spoke, and to tell the truth, we didn't get to those things before we gave up. But at any rate, his interest was in getting the safety message out there. I've been looking at power options for my garden this year. I don't have a real hedge, although my neighbor's lilac hangs over my yard. From what I've read, manual shears provide a better, cleaner cut than the motorized one. You would have a heck of a time doing a long and tall arborvitae hedge with manual shears, though. Gas-powered shears are good for larger jobs and branches that are over half an inch thick, but they are heavier than electric hedge clippers. For lawn edgers, you're looking at the same kind of concerns. If you have a really big job and it's too far from a power outlet, I always thought you'd need to go with gas. But I look at a Florida lawn care company that uses battery-powered edgers exclusively. They charge the batteries with solar panels mounted onto their trailers. 
The one advantage that corded edgers have over battery is that they are lighter. The battery does have some weight, but the corded variety must be near enough to an outlet to use it. For chainsaws, I've never actually considered owning one. I'm a genuine city girl in this respect, and I think if you need to cut a branch that you can't do with a really strong lopper, you might be wanting to call an arborist. Years ago, my family went camping in the wilderness every weekend in the summer with some friends of my parents. The men all had chainsaws that they used when they went out looking for driftwood and dead trees for firewood. One year, my dad nearly cut his thumb right off. Yeesh. Maybe I'm a little afraid of chainsaws. There are smaller battery-powered chainsaws now, though, that are lighter, and I can see them being useful for cutting smaller branches off of trees. There are a few that are only six or eight inches long. You can also get them in pull saw format for those high up branches. I guess I find them all dangerous, but they may be necessary. This was out of my normal comfort zone talking about power tools this week, but I did have a good time doing it and I learned a few things from Chris Kaiser. Thank you to Chris and the OPEI for talking with me. And I'd love to hear from you. Contact me through Facebook or Instagram at Florafauna CLG Podcast. You could also email me in the old-fashioned way at Shauna, that's with a U, at PegasusPublications.net. My thanks this week go out to my partners in crime, Yasmin Conception is our producer, Carl Thompson our graphic designer, Ian Leed is our president, and the Government of Canada, who has given us the funding to make Flora and Fauna possible. 